The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. And Paul, I, I wanted to see, how are you doing? Let's check in. <laughs> no, it's great. This, is, um, this feels natural. I'm good. Thank you for asking. <laughs> how, how's your day going? My day is going well. And of course, today we're going to be talking about foot and ankle pain. I imagine there may be some puns that come up, Paul, which I'm, I'm excited about. Can you tell the audience, what is it that we do on the show? Sure. Happy to, as always, Matt. We are, as a reminder, the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Uh, and today we will have the good fortune of talking to Dr. Joan Ritter about foot and ankle stuff, which is something I think at least every internist I know is lightly terrified of. Um, we'll get into it. Uh, Dr. Ritter, I will tell you about her, is an enthusiastic but overcommitted general internist <laughs> who enjoys seeing patients, <laughs> staffing world-class <laughs> residents, and discussing interesting cases with her terrific colleagues at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda. One of her favorite jobs is as a volunteer physician at the Arlington Free Clinic. She is delighted, but a little intimidated to be invited to be a guest on the Curbsiders. I, I feel shame right now uh, <laughs> for what I'm about to do, Dr. Ritter, but uh, please bear with us. So, you know, Paul, you, you know, there's, it's a problem with the foot puns. Um, they're, all, they're all very corny, Paul. <laughs> um, but I'm going to march forward. And uh, I'm these are all written down, by the way, just for a uh, behind the scene. <laughs> he actually he has no. Paul, mystique. don't don't break the mystiques. The people at home. Uh, anyway, I'm I'm healing good about this, Paul. Uh -huh. And Paul, I I wanted to tell you I've never talked about this before, but there was a time, Paul. I once had a torrid love affair with a podiatrist, but it didn't work out, because Paul, we just we just weren't soulmates. <laughs> Uh, also, don't tell my wife about the podiatrist. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay. Anyway, uh, with that, thank you, Dr. Ritter, for not uh, running away. <laughs> but let's let's start off by getting to know you. So can you tell the audience, uh, give them a one-liner. They've already heard your bio, but give them a one-liner. Tell them a little bit about yourself and some, a hobby or interest outside of medicine. Um, so I am a uh, clinician, educator, administrator here. And I am a wife and a mother of three children. And I actually, I like running, so this is fun. All right, so this is a very pertinent yes. topic that we're gonna get into tonight. And I love that you included an overcommitted general internist, which I think is just like, I, I might have to throw that into mine. I think most general it's internists would throw that in. Point, yeah. <laughs> Paul? Sure, I always like to ask, um, and this is the, the question that panics our guests usually the most, but any a book recommendation, movie recommendation, any piece of culture that you've enjoyed recently? So recently, I am making my way through 100 poems by Seamus Haney after taking an online course about him. It's really, he's a Nobel laureate and a really neat guy. Relatively recent one, too, if I remember right. It's 1995, okay. yeah. Or mm -hmm. maybe I'm old. Yeah, that's also possible. <laughs> Before L some of them were born. <laughs> little known fact uh, for the people in the house, we could cut this out for the Made podcast if it's going to embarrass Paul, but little known fact, Paul's mother is a poet laureate. And uh, York, Pennsylvania. That I think that may be why Paul is so eloquent in his speech, because uh, oh, wow. being raised around a poet laureate, you can imagine. 
and I've yet to meet her, which despite uh, my request that I would really yeah, no, like to meet your mom, Paul. Yeah, I, really... <laughs> I guess we're not great friends, Paul. Uh, did I say, I meant to, I amend my, uh, this is my good friend, Paul Williams, not my great friend. You've been demoted again, Paul. Uh, the other question I wanted to ask, just for the audience, uh, and, and for Paul and I as well, is uh, I always like to just get maybe advice or feedback that you have gotten along the way that you found helpful. It could be early in the career or it could be later in your career. Uh, I think early in my career, one of my mentors told me something that I actually continue to use every day, and it is whatever anger, irritation, frustration you, pe you feel with your patients, try to remember that they're probably doing the very best they can on that day when they're seeing you. And it actually applies to other people in your life as well. Um, so it's been very useful for me to not get upset or internalize things. So, I think that's great advice. Paul, anything else you wanted to, to ask before we get on to the cases? No, I think we should get on to the case. Unless, do we want to do Picks of the Week? It's entirely up to you. Oh, yeah, let's do some Picks of the Week. I think we could do some Picks of the Week. So this is where we just tell the audience about some really cool <laughs> stuff that Paul and I have been enjoying lately. Sure. Paul, tell me, have you seen any good movies lately? Great question. Thank you for asking. I do want to recommend, <laughs> I think the last time I was here, I recommended um, John Wick 3 to you all, and then I felt really self-conscious about that. This one, um, it may be better. I'm not, actually, for a content warning. This may not be for everyone, but I, I just saw the movie this week, um, Everything Everywhere All at Once. It, it is currently in theatrical release. It is by, I believe, um, a couple of guys that call themselves the Daniels. It stars Michelle Yeoh. And basically, it's this woman who finds out that she is the most important person in the entire multiverse and only she can sort of stop its impending destruction. And she's the most important person in part because she's made every wrong decision in her life up until that point. And it, it combines sci-fi and existentialism and there's martial arts and absurdist. So I, it was I, it's visually spectacular, but I also found myself like crying and then laughing and then sort of stunned at the end and actually watched the credits all the way through, which I, I never do. So just a really remarkable movie. I've not seen anything like it. So um, if you get the chance, everything everywhere all at once, uh, spectacular. You gave me like five minutes notice before you were going to see it. We were supposed to see it together. I will, I will see it. It seems, it seems like it's I mean, going to be great. It didn't have to be included here, but yeah, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I, I feel like on this episode, I'm just, uh, I, I want to let the audience in <laughs> on, our personal, out, yeah. on our personal relationship. Uh, yeah, this is a very uh, intimate recording here. Um, I would recommend, I'm actually watching a show. We've been traveling a bunch lately, and uh, apparently all the hotels now have showtime. And there's a show called Black Monday, which is what I like. My criteria, I can't watch anything that's too big of a commitment. And this is like three seasons, 10 episodes per season, and they're, they're 30 minutes. And it's a, it's a comedy about uh, this Wall Street firm of kind of underdogs in the 1980s. Uh, before the, the first season is before the major market crash happened. And uh, it's a fictionalized version of why the market crash happened. But uh, it has Don Cheadle uh, and Regina Hall are their leads, and uh, they are hilarious. So I would highly recommend that if any of you happen to be staying in a hotel that has showtime <laughs> or if you have it at home. Folks, I've said it before. I will say it again. I love sleeping more than almost anything else in this world. Uh, which is ironic because I don't get to do nearly as much of it as I would like. So when I sleep, I want to make sure that I'm doing it on the most comfortable mattress. I want to maximize my time and really make it count, which is why I'm thrilled to talk to you today about Birch mattresses. Birch mattresses are stylish, comfortable, and most importantly, they are environmentally conscious. The non-toxic mattresses are made right here in America and are crafted with natural and organic materials that have been sustainably sourced. These include things like fair trade cotton, organic wool, and natural latex to create luxurious mattresses designed to give you the best night's sleep. 
Each Birch mattress is constructed with non-toxic materials, <laughs> so that's good, and they focus on breathability to keep you cool at night. Birch mattresses are shipped directly from their manufacturing facility to your door for free. The mattress comes rolled up in a box. It's super easy to set up. You basically cut it open and just kind of watch it explode in your living room. It's, it's pretty great. And right now, Birch is giving $400 off all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's $400 off two free eco-rest pillows. Sleep better with Birch and visit birchliving.com slash curb. If you're anything like me, first of all, I'm very sorry for you. And second of all, you maybe got caught up in the sourdough baking craze a couple years ago. And if you're really like me, you have a mason jar full of like this beige goop that is accumulating this uh, slow brackish brine on top of it because you haven't actually baked anything sourdough in quite some time. But what if I told you you could get all the great taste of sourdough without going to all the trouble of maintaining the starter? Well, you can by ordering from Wild Grain. Wild Grain is the first baked from frozen box for artisanal bread. Plus, they have amazing rolls, pastries, and even handmade pastas. They use only clean ingredients such as unbleached flour and non-GMO flour, and they utilize a slow sourdough fermentation process that tastes better than anything you can find in the grocery store. All you have to do is sign up at wildgrain.com curb and choose which type of box you want to receive and how often. It's easy to reschedule, skip, or cancel. They sent me this gigantic box full of these delicious sourdough products, so I got sourdough everything bread, I got uh, fresh fettuccine, I got these gigantic chocolate chip cookies that were absolutely delicious, could not be easier. You just pull it from frozen, throw it into the oven, and then you have this amazing product in no time. So if you're hungry already, for a limited time, you can get $30 off your first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash curb to start your subscription. You heard me. That is free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash curb. That's wildgrain.com slash curb or use promo code CURB at checkout. But now, Paul, now let's get on to a case from Cashlack, and uh, I'll let you do the honors. Let's get to a case. Ah, perfect. I was, the slide is up there. So let's talk about Matt. Matt is a 40-year-old patient. He does not have much in the way of past medical history. He's presenting to your office with reports of acute ankle pain. He had just installed a zip line for his treehouse, and when descending the ladder, he rolled his right ankle, and now he has significant pain along the lateral aspect uh, of his right ankle. He is concerned that he may not be able to jump rope anymore, which has been an important part of his life. He is able to bear weight on the foot now, but it is very uncomfortable. And so before we get into it, I, I feel like just to acknowledge again that we see a fair number of ankle injuries in primary care, and maybe I won't put this on you, but I feel like a lot of the times we somehow forget all of the anatomy that happens below the knee. It's just sort of the foot and ankle. And most of the time we kind of cross our fingers and grit our teeth and hope that it's sprain and then tell patients to, to ice and compress and elevate it. So I'm wondering if, if you wouldn't at least start by talking us through some of the relevant anatomy that we need to be worried about here and sort of if you have any broad ways that you think about foot and ankle pain before we kind of get granular. So I usually divide it into regions, the ankle, which is the tail, uh, the fibula, the tibia, and the um, talus, the hind foot, the midfoot, and then the forefoot, and all the relevant ligaments and tendons that are likely to be damaged. Don't try to remember all of them, just certain ones, because we can't remember all of them. Yeah, I do not have them committed memory. I'd also like to say, Paul, this case felt like a little bit of a personal attack. Uh, it's a little too close to home with the treehouse and the jumping rope and things, but uh, we'll assume it's a different Matt. Yeah, different But Matt. also, he sounds very cool. <laughs> yeah. the person said that, but yeah, we don't know who this person yeah. is. Okay. So what's what's next for Matt, Paul? Like, what else do we need to know here? So actually, yeah, why don't, why don't we ask Dr. Ritter? So based on the history that you have so far, I guess I would 
just sort of in terms of your initial approach, what kind of historical questions would you ask that might be helpful for you? And how are you starting to think about, about Matt's ankle pain here, or foot pain, I should say? So it sounds like he rolled his ankle, which is the patient's way of describing an ankle sprain. And it's almost always, about 90% of the time, the foot inverts and then the, he, the ankle everts. And so there's disruption or injury to the lateral aspect of the ankle. If it sounds like he stepped down on it, there's not a huge amount of um, weight coming down on it, or um, he's not falling from a great height. That makes me think it's less likely to be something serious. But the structures on the lateral ankle um, include the medial malleolus, the anterior talofibular ligament, the calcaneofibular ligament, and the posterior talofibular ligament. Um, and I'd be looking for disruption to those, a fracture of the lateral malleolus, or even a fracture of the base of the fifth metatarsal. Calcaneal fracture is less likely because it doesn't sound like he fell from quite a height. You'll see those usually in patients who jump out of windows or things like that. Yeah, apparently that doesn't happen to eight and 10 year old boys because my kids have been jumping, <laughs> jumping off the treehouse uh, that we listed in this example, which is eight and 10 feet off the, off the ground, but apparently they're very resilient. Um, but yeah, other than, the, other than that part of the history, I mean, just the mechanism of injury, uh, I get a lot of patients coming in my office with ankle pain. How important, how important is it to ask anything else, like prior ankle injuries, that sort of thing? It's really important because sometimes, generally people will, um, once they have an ankle injury, their proprioception is impaired, they may have some ligamentous laxity, and then go on to have recurrent ankle sprains, so. Yeah, like the people that you, they, my dad used to say he had glass ankles because he, <laughs> he had like 10 ankle injuries and they just kept recurring throughout right, his life. So right. we thought it was just my dad being a wimp, no, but apparently that's like Basketball players are famous for this. Okay, yes. got it, got it. So, and again, I, I will not project this on our audience who I'm sure are fully capable of it. I will say in my own practice, if someone comes in with ankle pain, I'll just kind of poke at the ankle and then sort of like move it around just because I feel like they expect it. And then if they, <laughs> if they don't burst into tears, then again, I go back to sort of rice. But I imagine that you have a better physical examination um, than I do. So if you could sort of talk us through how you might start to examine Matt's ankle and make sure it's nothing serious. Well, make sure you take off the socks and shoes, which most of us don't always yep, do. Yep. <laughs> um, and um, generally start with palpate or excuse me, inspection, looking for any abnormalities of the Bony, bony structures, looking for uh, the degree of bruising or swelling that the patient has. Sometimes you'll see it even tracking distally, which alarms patients generally. Um, and then um, palpation. Um, don't forget to make sure that the limb is neurovascularly intact and palpate over the medial and lateral malleolus the midfoot, which you're generally gonna be palpating the base of the fifth metatarsal, and then the navicular bone. The navicular bone is the dorsal medial aspect of the foot, mm. proximally. Then um, finally, functional assessment. I also actually would probably palpate the length of the Achilles and the calcaneus as well. But um, the functional assessment would be the anterior drawer where you're stabilizing the leg, cupping the heel with the other hand and sort of pulling it forward. The tailor tilt where you're, you're grabbing the, the calcaneus and sort of tilting it in, invert, in an inverted way to see if there's any laxity. And comparing one side to the other is important. Yeah. The calcaneal tilt, you're, so you're just, you're just checking, um, you're 
inverting and everting the foot and just seeing if there's laxity one way or the other compared to the other side. Right. And you can actually see the, the, the little area where the calcaneal fibular ligament is. It may open up more on one side than the other. Yeah. So those are on the lateral side of right. the of the ankle. Yeah, Paul and I were talking about whether or not we needed to memorize the the names <laughs> of the, the the ligaments in the ankle. Honestly, which, the the palpation part is really important. Yeah. Just figuring out if there's any point tenderness anywhere. So. so I'm doing a very good physical yes, exam. Exactly. Is what I'm hearing. That's good. <laughs> You're a great clinician, Paul. So I'm not surprised. So okay, so we're you said neurovascularly intact, so just uh, testing Usual. their sensation, feeling their pulses, pulses, and then we're palpating the navicular, uh, the base of the fifth metatarsal, the malleol, the both malleolus, and then you said the calcaneus as well, and right. the Achilles tendon. Right. Okay. Anything I'm missing from the exam there? No, doing great. I, I would say, at least sort of in the, the preparation for this, it seems like most, and we're, we're presenting this as mostly as a sprain case. We think um, that being the case, it seems like it's usually lateral. If if Matt had medial. Um, medial malleolar pain, would that change your examination or your differential in any kind of meaningful way? Well, you're still palpating the malleolus, this time the medial. You're still palpating the midfoot, which is the navicular in this case, as mm -hmm. opposed to the base of the fifth. Um, and then probably along the length of the posterior tibial tendon, which comes down from the calf, wraps around the medial malleolus and inserts on the navicular. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that the testing, just back to the testing on laxity, uh, I, I was reading that sometimes when the person is just acutely swollen and in pain, it's just really hard to do a good they do laxity not like, exam. So they do not sometimes like you to move their ankle. When you're seeing them back yeah. later, if, if they're still having ongoing pain, it might be more easier to interpret that when they've had some time right. to decrease the swelling and you're, you're just like, why isn't this healing right? Maybe then... Um, but I haven't, I, I don't know that I've been able to test any joints laxity, like unless it's really, really obvious, like I'm just not, I, I need to practice more. Well, Paul, do you want to read, what's the next part of the case? Sure. So let's, let's go through Matt's exam a little bit. So he's, he's able to bear weight on the foot, though he does walk with a little bit of a limp. Um, he has some edema along the lateral aspect of the right ankle. He has significant discomfort with forced inversion of the ankle, although the tower tilt test is grossly normal as far as we can tell. And he has a, a negative squeeze test. So knowing... Knowing that stuff now, is there what further evaluation does Matt need? I guess the question always here is, does, does he need imaging? Would be a place to start? Or is there anything else that we should be thinking about for Matt? So I'll mention that the squeeze test is generally where you compress the tibia, the fibula together at the mid-calf, and it's to test for high ankle sprains. If, if that's negative, that makes it much less likely. But in terms of the Ottawa ankle rules, uh, for a long time, I had to look these up, and if you don't have to commit them to memory, because there's yeah. all, unless you don't have a smartphone or access to the internet, um, but uh, it's it's usually the it, one of the criteria is the patient comes in with ankle pain, mm -hmm. and then the any one of the following: malleolar tenderness to palpation, midfoot tenderness to palpation, or the inability to bear weight at the time of injury, or for within about four steps in the emergency room. And these have pretty good sensitivity and specificity, but they were initially studied in an emergency room setting. I don't think Matt needs an x-ray because it Different sounds Matt, like- no. We don't need <laughs> theoretical Matt, yeah. 
So, um, because he doesn't, cool. ha he's really ambulating. He probably has a little anterior talofibular ligament strain, maybe some calcaneal fibular ligament. But I usually will actually verbalize preemptively to the patient that I don't think they need an x-ray. Because sometimes they'll walk away thinking, that doctor didn't even x-ray my ankle. How do they know it's not broken? Yeah. So I usually throw it out there. This is why I'm not getting an x-ray. Yeah. And it sounds like the Ottawa ankle rules just are, are just looking at the sites most likely to experience a fracture and looking at the anatomy slides like the the you said the atfl the anterior tibial fib atfls either say <laughs> but anyway that, super that ligament, like that it, time. Uh, i I, lo I love that name atfl it just sounds cool uh but that it, it just sounds like those can just the way if you're inverting or everting your ankle that those ligaments attach and they can maybe avulse the bone or something as I was th how I was thinking of it, but it, it just looks like those are all the spots that are most likely. And the midfoot, is, you're feeling the navicular, I guess, with that, like thinking The navicular and then the avulsion of the fifth, the base oh, yeah. of the fifth, is, should be distinguished from a Jones fracture. Yeah. And the, the radiologist should be telling you. An avulsion is really the tip of it. A Jones fracture, fracture is more serious and it occurs in an area where, that's poorly vascularized okay. and prone to not healing well. That's at like the, ba the where the shaft meets the base of the fifth metatarsal, that fracture is the Jones fracture? Yeah, there's like a little, you can feel it on your own foot. It kind of sticks out a little bit there. Yeah, okay. I vaguely remember that from like skateboarding injuries or something, people <laughs> breaking their, yeah. Okay, what, what's next, Paul? So, well, it's, we, so we feel comfortable he doesn't need imaging. I think we're in sprain land and feel mostly okay about that. I would love to hear, so actually, I, I guess my first question for you is sort of doing the preemptive reading. It seems like there is a grading of sprains and I'm just wondering, is that something you do routinely? Does that add anything to your management of these? Well, it includes a functional evaluation, which you may not be able to do in a patient. So um, some of it is subjective, like there's mild, moderate and severe swelling and ecchymosis, which is pretty subjective, but um, it, it can help you with, with kind of giving the patient an idea of what to expect down the road, how much rehabilitation they're going to need. But again, it may be impossible to grade this sprain initially because of the inability to perform those functional tests. So what would you tell this very cool Matt, who's not me, uh, about how, how we're going to rehab or how we're going to treat the acute injury and how we're going to get him back to working on tree houses? So the acronym is that's kind of used in ankle sprains is PRICE, which is RICE plus protection. Mm -hmm. So protection includes any kind of support or assistance that the patient needs for pain-free ambulation. So in some people, they're really not having any pain unless they're kind of going up and down stairs or running. They don't need anything probably in terms of protection. Some people who are having more pain may need a, a lace-up splint or a stirrup splint to, to, for pain-free ambulation. And then people who really aren't able to ambulate without um, any pain um, may need a walking boot. And that essentially immobilizes the ankle and actually the forefoot. So keeping them in that for no more than seven to 10 days is recommended. And generally we would recommend as soon as possible doing rehabilitation exercises, even at home, and non-weight bearing if it hurts to bear weight. But I usually tell patients to start doing Achilles stretches when they can. And then also to, I just tell them to trace the uh, letters of the alphabet in the air with their toes, which 
is a good range of motion exercise. Are there any resources that you're referring patients to for these exercises, or, or actually do you ever refer patients for formal physical therapy? I do give them a handout because they're never going to remember a lot of yeah, this stuff. Yeah. And then um, in terms of physical therapy, I have a pretty low threshold for referring to physical therapy, particularly if they've had a prior ankle sprain like your father. Mm. Um, look what happened to him. Yeah, you know? yeah good glass ankles. You don't want that. So um, because the more laxity you have, the worse your proprioception, the less stability, the more likely you are to sprain your ankle in the future. So I think most patients don't understand the proprioception part, and I don't think I, I did either. I didn't even understand that until yeah. I, like a couple of days ago when yeah. I was yeah. pre-reading so this. Yeah, so that's where you, you get on the little wobble board, and, right. and uh, that could end poorly, I think, unless you had supervised physical therapy, yeah. probably. But um, that that is really important because people just continue to sprain their ankle. We have made friends with Dr. Ted Parks, who, who writes mm -hmm. this great book, mm -hmm. uh, Practical Office Orthopedics. And one of the things he said in there about the hinged, so it's the white, typically the white brace, or sorry, the stirrup brace that you mentioned. Right. It's a white brace with the heart rigid right. sides, and the, it's an air cast often. But he said that that's good because uh, it lets you do flexion extension. Right. And uh, some patients can tolerate that right away. The lace-up braces... Is a, it doesn't let you really do as much flexion extension or inversion eversion. The, both of the braces prevent the invert. The, the stirrup right. one prevents the inversion eversion. Um, and then, as you said, I never really thought of it that way. The walking boot is like really immobilizing, but you want that as short as possible because y you want the person's proprioception. And uh, apparently, they did studies in mice where they like they totally immobilized some pe some, and then they totally they they left some motion in the others, and and it. It does have this like micro architecture change, which I just, I had nothing about, but I thought it was fascinating. Can I just ask the audience, just by show of hands, did, was anyone else envisioning mice in little tiny yes, boots or was that just me? Okay, thank you. <laughs> I try to provide a rich visual experience for the podcast listening audience. All right, just checking in. Well, where are we at with this? So we're, uh, we're, we're talking about the, why it's important for rehab and we recommended the price therapy what are medication wise, Matt, this Matt, uh, let's say his pain threshold is not as high as mine, which is exceedingly, <laughs> you know, I, I, sometimes I just put my hand on a hot stove just to prove just I can feel still something. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what, what are you going to give him for pain or what other supportive things do you do? So there's, there's no real data about non-steroidals versus acetaminophen. Okay. I personally would probably choose non-steroidals, but um, you can let them choose. And then um, other therapy, um, I do give them a walking boot if they need it or mm -hmm. crutches. Um, and one thing I will say it, that is a nice touch for our patients and that I always get good feedback from patients about is giving them a handicapped pa parking placard. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> Which prevents them from them coming back to get one. Okay. So um, they really appreciate that, especially if you think they're going to be um, yeah. disabled for a while. All right, pro tip there, that's great. And at what point, so I, at what point are you referring to a, a foot and ankle specialist? When do you refer to podiatry or foot and ankle surgery? Is there, is, is it all fractures or are there certain circumstances where you do escalate their care or do you feel like, I guess I'll leave the question there. So if they're not getting better and, I, and I'm in communication with the physical therapist and they think that there's some significant issues 
There's not a lot of data behind repairing the ligaments in terms of improved outcomes. There is improved outcomes with the physical therapy and proprioception. If there's a fracture, you can probably, I know this is going to sound crazy to an internist, you can probably manage a unimolular fracture just with splinting and then having them seen in a few days, like to a week, by, a, by an orthopedist, if you don't think there's any, any other serious issues and it's non-displaced. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, especially in areas where there's maybe you don't have easy access to an orthopedist. And then pretty much all the other ones, bimolular, high ankle injury sprint, injuries, and then um, trimolular, I'd be referring to an orthopedist. What about, we, we've asked this on the show and I've recently noticed that like multiple patients I've sent out with topical NSAIDs, which are now up front in the arthritis guidelines at least, I haven't been having as much luck as I would have liked, but are you using topical NSAIDs or is it mostly oral, oral medications? For young patients, I would probably just use orals. Yeah. And then for, I mean, we give that a lot in our older patients who have some risk with using oral non-steroidals, mm -hmm. but... As, as far as I'm aware, there's not a lot of data behind the topicals, but we give them out all the time. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Provider Solutions and Development. And right now we're going to switch gears a little bit because we have a trivia segment coming up sponsored by Provider Solutions and Development. They are a leader in physician recruitment, Paul. And you know, Paul, if you're a doctor looking for a new job, then you're going to want to turn to Provider Solutions and Development because they partner with healthcare organizations across the country, providing you with access to hundreds of job opportunities. They also offer holistic career support. So no matter if you're a recent graduate or someone with decades of experience, they can help you find a position that fits both your personal and professional goals. So, Paul, do you know their website? Because I could tell it to you if you don't. I would love to hear it. This is not part of the trivia, by the way. They can head over to info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders to see what new job opportunities are out there for you. And now, Paul, uh, if you wanted to try to throw some trivia at me, I will say that almost certainly I'm going to get everything right. But let's see how it goes. I feel great about this, and I, I'm thrilled that this is kind of medicine adjacent, some of these. These were provided for us, so I, I'm excited for your answers. Question one, Dr. Watto, what is the American equivalent of a British hospital's A and E? This is um, this must, Paul, certainly be the famous avocado and eggs breakfast that we all know they love in Britain. Great, great, great riff. I was going to go like a BBC joke as opposed to our <laughs> arts and entertainment, but that is actually their emergency department. A&E stands for accident and emergency. So over one, it doesn't matter. I still feel like you're going to do, you're going to finish strong. I feel good about this. Okay. Dr. Watto, what was the first human organ to be successfully transplanted? Yeah, I'm, Paul, I'm going to say, it, wasn't it a face transplant? Didn't someone have their face? <laughs> didn't someone have their face transplanted? I believe it was a movie starring Nicolas Cage, John Travolta, confirmed the technology and really explained the science very well. Yeah, that famed documentary. Um, great, great, <laughs> great guess. Um, it is actually the kidney, the kidney or a kidney, I should say. The transplant took place in 1954 at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Um I, they didn't really design, define success, but I, I'm assuming it, everything went well afterwards. All right. Well, I think, Paul, we have maybe time for one or two more. So let's, uh, I, I'm feeling good. We'll, we'll get this. You're, this one, you're going to knock out of the park. I feel great about it. Dr. Watto, where did Dr. Anthony Fauci receive his medical degree? Bonus points for the graduation year. 
Well, uh, I, I believe it was Full Sail University, Paul, which is, you know, if you're in broadcasting like we are, it is a great place. Uh, sure, great. They are not a sponsor, but Full Sail University. <laughs> but we're open. Um, Dr. Anthony Fauci actually graduated from Cornell University Medical College in 1966, which is astounding. All right. Ready for one more? I feel like this is the one. Let's, let's just, I mean, you you win nothing. But I mean, if you get it right, you can still feel good about it. So let's let's talk about Botox, botulinum toxin is most commonly known for being used to reduce the appearance of facial wrinkles today. But what was its first actual purpose? You know, Paul, I should actually know this one. And I'm going to say spasticity, but I, I'm not exactly sure. That you're you're right in the, the right ballpark. Spasticity where? Um, I don't know, Paul, maybe the legs? So close. It is actually the eye. Uh, it was first used <laughs> to treat rare eye muscle disorders. I thought you were closing on it. I felt good about it. <laughs> it was used almost exclusively by ophthalmologists for years, and then the FDA approved it for cosmetic use in 2002, so not that long ago. Once they realized how hot everybody looked. So. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Once the eye spasm calmed down, they realized it could make everything beautiful. <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, once again, provider solutions and development not only has hundreds of job opportunities available for you to explore, but you'll also find free resources guidance and tips to help you navigate every stage of your career. And no matter what your personal or professional goals are, Provider Solutions and Development can help you discover your next step. So head over to info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders to see what jobs are available for you. Once again, that's info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders. Well, Paul, are we done with this first case? Should I think we? so. Why don't we okay. move on to the next one? This next patient sounds like a little bit of a jerk, but we'll, we'll talk. <laughs> so Paul is a 46-year-old patient with minimal, <laughs> with minimal past medical history who presents with reports of right posterior heel pain, and he's actually started training for a half marathon, which he keeps reminding everyone about over and over again. He also keeps saying that he's also run a marathon in the past. Um, and it's exhausting, and we think he probably has an access to disorder, but that's not why he's here. Uh, so I don't know why I included all that, but you know. Uh, it's unnecessary details for as I'm as I, Paul and I are having some relationship problems. Um, it's a he, long car ride here. Yeah, it's a long car. How are you getting home? Um, <laughs> all right. He has been having, uh, so he's been having two weeks of right heel pain. And um, it's, it has been bearable, but it's annoying, just like Paul's talking about his marathon all the time. And uh, he does not recall any injury that preceded this. Um, the pain is worse when he's climbing up hills. And because he is also a bad doctor, he self-managed uh, a case of bronchitis two weeks ago, prescribing himself levofloxacin for a runny nose. Paul, come on. So um, what do you think about... I mean, not his personality. What do you think about this heel <laughs> this pain? This theoretical Paul. I feel like <laughs> this theoretical Paul who's not as, I, this, yeah. Anyway, uh, what do you think? So it's important to note that he has increased his training, which is going to lead to overuse injuries. Um, and I go back to the anatomy. I just look at what's at the back of the heel, which is a, it's, he's not having pain at the, at the um, plantar aspect of the calcaneus. It's posterior. So the things that are there are the calcaneus, the Achilles inserts right there at the calcaneus. And then there's a couple bursa right there, the subcutaneous and the retrocalcaneal. If it's a little bit more medial, again, I'd be thinking about the posterior tibial tendon for him. But there's something about his overtraining maybe or his increase in dur duration of his runs or the hill work 
And then levoquin is famous, as the fluoroquinolones are, for causing um, tendinitis, even in patients who have, are not running or doing much of anything. So definitely a risk factor. And any other historical questions that you ask? It seems like you got a, a fair amount of data there, but other than sort of all the bad examples that he's already provided, is there anything else that you ask patients who present specifically with posterior heel pain? I ask them if um, it came on all of a sudden, which generally they will tell you, because it's apparently if you rupture your Achilles, it's very dramatic. I've had actually a couple patients who tell me at the time that they thought they had been assaulted. Oh. kicked or hit on the basketball court or the soccer field because it's so dramatic. So um, it doesn't sound like that's what it is. I might ask him if it's present while wearing shoes because the, the retrocalcaneal bursitis may not, or, or the, there's something called a Haglund's deformity where right at the insertion of the Achilles you get this bony spur. That's much less symptomatic if you're not wearing shoes. And a lot of times people with Achilles tendinitis or tendinopathy will, when they first get out of bed in the morning and they um, dorsiflex their foot, that it, the Achilles stretches. So it can, it can uh, worsen that. Yeah, I was reading, I had never made the connection that the uh, like plantar fasciitis, which, you know, the first step of the day is painful because the foot's been... Um, the foot's been in plantar flexion overnight, right. and the Achilles is, it suffers from the same thing. Right. I had no idea. Um, the, so for this, what, what, what would be next for this case? I mean, the, for someone like Paul um, in the physical exam here, is it going to differ much from what we talked about for the, for the last patient that had inverted their foot? Definitely you're going to focus not so much on the ankle but on the Achilles. And that's really, you just don't want to miss some Achilles problem because mm -hmm. it's, it requires lengthy rehabilitation, the fibers are not well vascularized, um, and if there is underlying tendinitis, it can lead to a rupture. So uh, palpate the entire length of the Achilles tendon from the start to the insertion. Um, if you palpate on either side of the insertion, laterally and medially, you're essentially palpating the one of the bursas. Mm -hmm. So that may be the bursitis that we had talked about. And then look for the Haglund's deformity, which is usually pretty obvious, which is a big bump. I believe I've had that before. I never knew what it was until you just said this. <laughs> I ran barefoot for, I want to say six or eight weeks, and then eventually it went away. I just, I could not tolerate wearing shoes. And I was... It may, maybe that was a... a Bursitis. Yeah, I don't know. It was not fun, but I could I could palpate some nodule on my Achilles tendon. I thought for a while. So you can actually, if you if you start feeling people's Achilles tendons, you can feel thickening and irregularity on the on mm. the Achilles, and or you can feel like an area of prominence. But one of the most important things to do is the Thompson squeeze test. Hey everybody, I just wanted to pop in here for just a second. We were describing the Thompson squeeze test and also talking about how important it is to roll out Achilles tendon tears. Uh, and I just want to make sure that we are absolutely clear about this. So the way that the Thompson squeeze test works is you have the patient lie prone on the examination table. So they're lying on their stomach with their feet hanging off the edge of the table and you'll squeeze their calf. And what you're looking for is plantar flexion. So if they have a partial tear of the Achilles, you may actually see some asymmetry in terms of degree of plantar flexion. But if someone has a complete tear of the Achilles and you perform the Thompson squeeze test where you squeeze their calf, they won't have any plantar flexion of the foot at all. So that's the Thompson squeeze test. We just wanted to make sure that we got this right. And now on with the show. Yeah, I'm trying to picture this. So they're... Yeah, you can do it just with your own. Yeah. 
you know, just like when you're sitting here, you see it. Okay. All right. So this is, this is a test that I have not been performing. So I may have missed, hopefully I didn't miss any, probably I didn't miss any, Paul. It's probably it's fine. Endless Achilles it's probably ruptures. fine. Probably, it's been it's probably fine. Yeah. Great. So <laughs> let's, let's say that, uh, Paul, God bless, um, the Thompson test is normal. So we're not going to rupture his Achilles tendon despite his use of levofloxacin. How, how do you manage the specific injury? So the first thing you have to do, which a lot of runners are not going to want to do, is stop running. Or at least most of the time I would err on to stop running rather than just stop the hills. But because um, it just takes so long to rehabilitate. I have a very low threshold for sending people to physical therapy because um, of the lengthy rehab. And there's also data about a particular type of physical therapy for rehabilitating um, Achilles tendon uh, injuries called an Alfredson's protocol. I don't know. That's all I know about <laughs> the protocol. But just knowing that there's evidence behind that is really important. Definitely Achilles stretches without bouncing. Some people, and this is, uh, I had one patient with who um, had bilateral Achilles tendonitis after getting Levaquin, and just giving him heel lifts completely took away his symptoms. So just a little bit of a heel lift some, as I'm sure a lot of people in the audience know, some running shoes have a drop. You can look at what the drop from the heel to the forefoot is. So there's some that are com completely neutral, and then some that have a little higher heel, so the drop is greater. Mm -hmm. That may be a more comfortable shoe for those patients. Because it shortens the tendon. It's like it's taking the stretch off of the exactly. tendon. Exactly. Especially if you just, like I bought a pair of those shoes that had no, that were completely neutral. And just when you start running on them, right. it's, it can really cause yeah. some issues with your Achilles if you're not stretched. Because when, when you dorsiflex your foot, your Achilles is, that's putting the maximum stretch on the Achilles, right? Like with the, with the Achilles exactly, stretches. Exactly, yeah. How do you tell them to do the Achilles stretches? Do you have any favorites or do you give, is this a handout as well? Could just, just for the audience, can you describe what those are like? I just tell like? them to, I show them, I'm sta standing against, leaning a against a wall. Okay. And then stepping, like you're going up the stairs, but letting your heel hang off. Letting your back. heel hang off. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's good. And I think a lot of the times, so Matt has this, um, again, as we're getting personal here, this sort of educational method where he'll say the exact wrong thing just to elicit the teaching <laughs> points. So I'm, I'm going to try this now and see how it goes. So I feel like a lot of the times the answer for a lot of musculoskeletal complaints is steroid injections. So is this someone that I should refer or try to inject a steroid myself just to make things magically better? You can do it, Paul. I believe yeah, yeah, in you. <laughs> that would be a really bad idea because it'll increase your risk of rupture of the Achilles. So would not rec I mean, not that any of us would probably start injecting Achilles anyway, <laughs> right? But like this today's is, my day. This is one of the spots. I, I know for a lot of orthopedic injuries, the answer is... Inge try some things. If that doesn't work, give them some steroids. Uh, but this is not one of those right. problems. Right. So what w is the is the therapy pretty similar as far as just rice therapy, uh, oral NSAIDs? If, if they could, if they're, if it's safe to give this person, it's mostly then... activity modification, stretching, and physical therapy. Okay. Yeah. Great, Paul. Anything else with this case, or should we move on to? All right. Well, unfortunately, Paul comes back, and uh, <laughs> he's still talking about the marathon. And uh, you begin to wonder if he ever actually ran it. Uh, he's now reporting uh, on the plantar aspect of his right foot that it's worse when he takes his first step of the morning and it improves throughout the course of the day. So this is, of course, something we see all the time. Right. How, do you, how do you think about this? You know, what's the diagnosis? How do you 
how do you counsel patients through this or is there anything else you're doing just to confirm the diagnosis? So I think this is probably one of the most the easiest diagnosis in this whole lecture, right? You right. can It's perfect for tel telemedicine. Just with that story, mm -hmm. you can kind of tell what they have. The first step out of bed in the morning, some patients will be tenderness over the insertion of the plantar fascia. And I usually try to talk to patients and, and explain the physiology because they think the problem is their heel. They think that they have a bone spur on their yeah. heel. You know, I'm sure you guys have heard that before. Of and course. they think it's the spur, I think, that's digging into the, and making them right. pain. So I go over the fact that there's a longitudinal arch and the, the contribution contribution of the Achilles fibers to the plantar fascia and that the problem is the arch of their foot in the plantar fascia. The arch isn't getting supported. The plantar fascia is not getting, is, is too tight. And I try to address that and have them do stretches, wear orthotics to support the arch. And then again, specifically tell them that an x-ray is not indicated. And tell them to wear supportive footwear. And generally I tell patients who are runners to change their shoes every 250 to 500 miles. Mm. And that to only use their shoes for running so that they otherwise they're not gonna know how many miles they have on their shoes. There's no real benefit. You know how you go into running stores and they'll put you on a treadmill and then they bring yeah. over this $100 the or- pronation, over pro <laughs> under pronation. Yeah, yeah, thing. and then they try to sell you the orthotic, uh -huh. those have never been shown to be superior to off-the-shelf. So start with off-the-shelf off the orthotics to support the arch, stretching, heel cups or heel pads are of no benefit to them. But sometimes that's what they've already used when they come in because they mm -hmm. think the problem's with their heel. And you mentioned the, the bone spur and not getting an x-ray. I, th I was reading that like there's some degree of ischemia from just the, the biomechanics uh, at that spot where the the, tend the plantar fascia inserts onto the calcaneus and that it starts to become calcified. And so if you get an x-ray, you see this like calcified and kind of pointy looking thing. I know. And patients are like, oh, that must be where my pain's coming from. Because it feels just like there's some kind of yeah. bony structure. And often there. the radiologist will comment about a spur, not necessarily implying that that's the cause of the pain, right. but it just then once that's on that, and that report, people are gonna be like, I have a spur, that's my problem, I need a, you know, that thing removed. Right. Um, I've definitely seen that patient before, so I hopefully now have something to say to them about it, that it's not not the likely cause. Um, Can I ask, actually, because I, I, I feel like this is so easy to diagnose, and I, I think we almost don't think of anything else when we think about plantar mm -hmm. pain, so I, I just wonder if, are there any other mimics or anything else that should be on a differential that we should at least consider? Because I feel like anytime someone's like, the bottom of my foot hurts, regardless of history or anything else, we're like, all right, plantar fasciitis, I got this. Like, is there other stuff that we should be worried about here or, or different presentations that's just to piss off something else clinically? So if it's more medial, the posterior tibial tendon is, again, a concern because it's sort of more, but it's definitely more medial. Um, and then tarsal tunnel syndrome, which is is analogous to carpal tunnel syndrome, where the but the nerve gets trapped in the retinaculum um, that connects the medial malleolus to the calcaneus, and so there's a compressive neuropathy with pain that shoots down the bottom of your foot. And which tendon was that? I I missed that part. The you said it gets com what gets compressed between the 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 nerve. Yeah. Okay. The nerve. Got it. So so for this person. 
Uh, what do you tell them about the stretches and the expected prognosis of this? Because I find that this is the hard, hard part for a patient to, to digest. Actually, most plantar fasciitis goes away after about a year, no matter what right. you do. Um, but um, but Paul feels bad now, and he's, I know. You know, <laughs> I know. He's, he's a bit of. We a, feel like we need to give him a medicine yeah. too all the time. But this is another case for handouts, giving the patient a handout that kind of puts in black and white the the recovery, what the patient patient needs to do, which is sportive footwear, stretching, um, rolling a ball on your foot to stretch mm -hmm. the plantar fascia. Um, stretching the Achilles, and then there's the cold Coke can or a frozen water bottle mm -hmm. that you roll under the foot as well. Right. And for this, the, you have them wrap a towel around their foot and pull right. their toes towards them? Right. Okay. Which actually seems like a replication of the, the windlass test up there. Are those are these things that you were typically doing, not <laughs> to make you turn around, in terms of your physical examination, is there yes, anything else other than yeah. sort of poking at the insertion yeah. point and sort of stretching the toes? Yeah, the thing I found though that I, it's such a classic presentation and then I push on the heel and the patient is very upset with me for pushing on, like why, and then I'm yeah. like, why did I do that? I knew <laughs> I was. So <laughs> they're just so, so, I don't know that it adds anything. That's like, fair. It, I, I wanted to make sure we do talk a little bit more about the posterior tibial tendon dysfunction. Do you want to save that, Paul, or do you want to do, nope, can we take it? So that I was, because this wasn't something that I was familiar with, but the posterior tibial tendon, it runs around the medial malleolus, right? And then it sort of pulls up and helps support the arch of the foot. How, how does that present, like, diff, what would that presentation look like, the illness script? And I don't want to miss this, and I feel like I may have missed it. So I think I've missed it a lot, but since I noticed and I've read more about it, it's generally um, a middle-aged woman, maybe overweight, wearing poorly supportive shoes who comes in with medial ankle pain. Okay. And it tends to be a burning pain and it tends to radiate up the leg. Um, and we talked about the too many toes sign. I don't want to preempt your question of the too many toes sign. Yeah, tell us about the too many toes sign, my favorite <laughs> physical exam finding now. You have the patient stand facing away from you with their feet together mm. without their shoes and socks on and you look for how many toes are kind of peeking out laterally if you see more than about two and a half that suggests that there's a laxity or there's acquired flat foot laxity of the posterior tibial tendon right so for the people in the podcast audience uh, trying to visualize this it's like if you're viewing the person from behind their their lower leg is blocking several toes uh, so you should only see maybe like two two toes or so two, two and, and a half, half toes peeking laterally out. um to their their leg but if you see more than that that's the too many toes sign which is aptly named paul yes. it's, it's nice right. not to have uh, it's so much more useful than an eponym which uh, <laughs> it just does nothing for me you got to remember the eponym For over 80 years, Oxner Health has grown to be the leading academic and community health system across the Gulf South, boasting past pioneers who have changed the practice of medicine, including Dr. Alton Oxner, whose work linked smoking to lung cancer. Today, physicians at Oxner continue this pioneering approach to healthcare by improving chronic disease management through an innovative and interactive digital medicine program. They are elevating patient care by removing barriers to practice and allowing physicians to focus their time on the patient. With their physician-led practice, Oxner Health offers full and part-time opportunities, generous benefits, including parental leave and paid continuing medical education. Their primary care compensation plan is transparent, fair, and payer agnostic. They offer opportunities for academic title, teaching, research, and leadership. Practice with ease, practice with purpose, 
practice with Oxner Health. Visit oxner.org slash primary care jobs. Again, that's oxner, O-C-H-S-N-E-R dot org slash primary care jobs for more information. So where are we at next, Paul? We are moving on to a new case here. Let's move I think on to a new case. I think we've cracked this one. Yeah, no, I, I think, yeah. Paul's plantar pain is, is solved, mm. I guess. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's talk about Patricia. She'll be our, our last patient of the day. So she is a 24-year-old patient who has actually run several marathons as opposed to Paul. She is coming into your office. She has a two-week history of a nagging medial midfoot pain. She is not able to really well localize it. It's just kind of, you know, gestures vaguely in the area. It's worse with walking and running. It is relieved with rest. I feel like midfoot pain is probably, of all the foot and ankle complaints, the one that brings me the most anxiety because it's the one I feel like I know the, the least about. So what differential should we be thinking of for, for Patricia here? So she's clearly exercising a lot. She's a young woman. You know, you, you'll know on the exam whether she's underweight. Um, maybe she's exercising too much. But this insidious pain that gets worse when you exert yourself located near a bony structure is usually a stress fracture of some kind. And if it's medial, then you think of the navicular Mm-hmm. and also some of the metatarsals. So stress fractures of those bony structures is what I would be thinking about. And what would be, so you get an x-ray, and if, if she I does end up x-ray. having a stress fracture, what is the, is that someone that you're referring uh, for to see a foot and ankle person, or are you just giving them a brace or like a walking boot or something? If they have pain with any weight bearing, mm-hmm. depending on where the the stress fracture is, you can give them something to protect it. Like mm-hmm. the, if it's a metatarsal and um, the, have you seen those post-op shoes where it's basically a stiff sole that doesn't allow yep. you to bend at the metatarsal phalangeal joints? That may be enough. I try not to put someone in a boot if I can help it because that just immobilizes the Achilles and causes more problems. But if she's if she's having pain with any weight bearing, you may need to do one of those two things. Okay. Uh, she definitely needs to modify her activity, which again is not that easy for runners to do. Yeah. And um, if, I, if there's a metatarsal stress fracture, just generally um, finding another way to exercise, like in the pool, on a bike, to maintain your cardiovascular fitness so that when you do go back to running, you can. And then you just have to gradually increase exercise. And if you have pain, then you stop and go back. If if she kind of has a uncomplicated recovery, I won't refer her. But if she, if she seems to not be getting any better, um, and if you're suspicious that it's an avicular, that would be a reason to refer her right away. Why is that for the navicular? What's different about that? So if the x-ray is negative and she doesn't get better and it's and you think the pain is in the navicular area, additional imaging is recommended. Okay. Um, like a CT scan or an MRI because, again, it's, a, it's one of the bones that's at, at uh, increased risk for non-healing. And actually in one study, the time to healing for a navicular stress fracture was about nine months. So oh it's, a pretty, it's a pretty serious injury. This yeah. feels like something that could be missed, too. Like, this, yeah. this is the mm-hmm. case that I, I wrote the case, and then I got anxious about it, which is <laughs> probably not healthy. But, like, I, I feel like this could be easily missed because you could misapply the auto ankle rule. So it sounds like this is something where you actually, unfortunately, you know, have to listen to the patient and have high clinical suspicion as opposed to Yeah, and it tends to be either repetitive, repetitive stress in, in, with 
playing stop and go sports like tennis or soccer or running. And the idea is that the that navicular gets compressed between the adjacent bones. Okay. And the blood supply is not great. Well, how are we doing on time? I think maybe we maybe we go to the next case, Paul, and then we can see if there's any any questions. Yes, yeah, sounds good. So we'll, we'll stick with Patricia for right now. We're gonna change her history a little bit. So we'll say that she no longer has time for running her marathons. She's taken on a position in a high-powered law firm. And as in that firm, she's required to wear high heels for long hours most days and is coming to your office now with pain at the ball of her left foot. So on the, the plantar aspect, she feels almost like there's a pebble in her shoe. So now we're sort of in the, sort of the metatarsal sort of area, I suppose. So what, what, what should we make of that? And what kind of things should we be thinking about for Patricia now? So it's what, I would diagnose as metatarsalgia, which is actually more of a symptom than a diagnosis, right? And uh, then start my differential from there. I probably would do an x-ray because there are certain um, injuries like an avascular necrosis of the, of the head of one of the metatarsals that can be pretty serious and that would require referral. Or she could have osteoarthritis, she could have maybe a little stress fracture. I would probably get an x-ray for her, an AP and lateral. If that's normal, I just apply the metatarsalgia treatment. It doesn't really matter what the diagnosis is so much. It could be a Morton's neuroma, bursitis, capsulitis. Um, as you get older, you lose the fat on the bottom of your foot, actually. So you're more prone to having just the metatarsalgia. But the treatment is all the same. If you've ruled out anything serious, you offload the forefoot by decreasing the heel height, widening the toe box, and the best, my favorite orthotic of all time is the metatarsal pad. You actually have a transverse arch of your foot uh -huh. right behind the MTPs and you have to support that. So a metatarsal pad is a, is a little pad that you put in that transverse arch. On the plantar side of the foot, mm -hmm. it just, just helps Yeah, and you kind of have to show the patient where to put it uh -huh. because they will inevitably put it right over the MTP joints because uh -huh. that's where it hurts, but you actually have to put it behind behind them. Um, there's actually studies that show the actual distance between the MTP joint and the top of the pad has to be about 10 millimeters. And I don't know if you've, you all have ever used one. I have it, no. No, it's life. It really is life changing. <laughs> I was training for a half marathon with, and I developed a Morton's neuroma, and I just kept training with my little metatarsal pad. So it was wow. really, it's really um, a nice little trick to have for patients, and they're inexpensive. You can buy them over the counter. So those are the things I would offload the t offload the forefoot, use a metatarsal pad, change your footwear. Yeah. And we, we built this case a little bit to sort of lean maybe towards Morton's neuroma, specifically with uh, the choice of footwear. Would you mind sort of talking a little bit about the impact of footwear on the development and sort of management of Morton's neuroma? So Morton's neuroma is actually a misnomer. It's just a thickening of the, of, um, the area around the, the, mort the um, nerve. Um, it's actually not a thickening of the nerve itself, but it, it gets caught between all the little ligaments and the bones down in that area of the foot. And you're then you're taking the foot and jamming it into a narrow toe box, whether it's dress shoes for men or ski boots, and you're compressing it and it thickens as it runs between usually the second toe space, but it could also be the third. Mm -hmm. So those are the most common places for Morton's neuroma. If the pain is in the first or the fourth, it's unlikely to be a Morton's neuroma. And this is one that does occasionally get treated with steroid injection, I believe. 
Well, actually, you know, if they have bursitis or capsulitis, those can be treated with steroid injection yeah. as well. Okay. So sometimes when I send them to the podiatrist, which I would for that injection, um, they just inject it and it gets better. And just going back to the one of the previous conditions, the plantar fasciitis, I was uh, I was reminded when prepping that the injection for that can be done, but it's a little bit technically difficult and one of the more painful injections. So before you jump to that for patients, I don't know, are you sending patients for that for any of these other conditions we've I talked just, about today? I just send them. I don't, but I don't know. I don't like dictate what's going to be done, but right. I have seen patients who get that done or shockwave lithotripsy done or like whatever. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, Paul, what do you want to do here? Should we take any questions if there are questions and then we can wrap up and uh, we can we can hang out and answer any other questions, but I want to let people be respectful of their time and let them get going. Sure, sure. Um, does any audience, anything that wasn't clear today, uh, you can call it out and we'll just we'll just repeat it on mic just for the audience at home. Yes, yes, sir. Uh, I thought everything was clear. I did have a question. You talk a lot about the supportiveness and the, you know, the art supports and our products and things for people who had an injury. You know, you go to the internet now and the, the whole craze is sort of up and down with the barefoot. Movement, you know, we're meant to run without shoes on, you know, like the or out of Mexico or whatever. What is your thought about that? If you start low and go slow and build up, is it a good idea or is it really not a role for, for barefoot running? So there's no running shoe that's shown to be superior to any other running shoe because the what what's called the kinetic chain, which is how your legs move or your foot moves relative to your legs, to your torso. It's so complicated in all of us that even with gait analysis, it's hard to determine, you know, what shoes best. Most people would agree that you have to work your way up to a the five to, the the. Um, yeah, the, that's what I'm thinking of, because the intrinsic muscles of your foot may not be strong enough to use those. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't go out and run, you know, more than a mile or two in those first, because whenever you get new running shoes, it's, it's better to swap them out, I think. Like, the ones I got that had zero drop, they caused me problems. But most of us, we find a good pair of running shoes, we just stick with that, right, for, for right. year after year in the same, and God forbid they should discontinue. I had like New Balance 574s <laughs> for like 15 years. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, so the question for the audience at home, if they didn't glean what it was, it was about the, the toe shoes, the barefoot running movement, and uh, the, it sounds like just ramp yourself up. Don't just, if you're already running 50 miles a week, don't start running 50 miles a week in a totally different type of shoe that might cause problems. That, that makes empiric sense. Yep. Um, any other, any other questions from the audience about anything we talked about today? I, one, one further question I had was about the posterior tibia, posterior tibial tendon dysfunction. Is that just treated with arch support and stretching, uh, like some of the other things we talked about? Is there anything else to be done for that? Initially, it is. Um, proper footwear is really important, and arch supports to take the pressure or the stress off of that um, tendon. In my experience, though, people take a long time to get oh, better. Okay. And so if they're taking longer, if they're, I send them to a podiatrist and sometimes they need surgery. Yeah. To, to adjust the tendon right, somehow. Right. Exactly. 
It's in general for the conditions we talked about today, are you seeing people monthly, every six weeks? I've found that with orthopedic injuries in general, if you see people back too soon, like yeah, then you're they're just not like, feeling better yet. And they're like, come on, I don't feel any better. They're like, what's, you're not very good at this. And I'm like, right. I know, but you need more time. Yeah, with the tendons, I mean, any tendinous injury takes a long time to get better. So yeah. I'd say the the exception may be stress fractures mm -hmm. where or overuse, other overuse injuries because most runners, maybe not most, but many runners run as therapy to manage something else, right? In their, to make themselves feel better, to manage their weight, to manage anxiety, depression. Not saying everyone does, but it, no, she's not throwing shade to you all. I mean, come on. This is making a lot of sense, by the way. <laughs> but people get so used to running or they're, they're running, training for a race, and you tell them stop running, it's very difficult for them to stop running. So I just try to, they may need a little bit more moral support. Yeah, I think the pool is a good things. option yeah. if they have access mm -hmm. to a pool. You can let out of a lot of aggression swimming laps in a pool. Well, uh, Paul, I think uh, this has been fantastic. I think, you know, we worked a lot out about our relationship. <laughs> uh, the audience has been great. It's be a long car ride home. Um, at this point, I think, should we go to take-home points or go to the outro? I, take home points, then the outro, I think. Dr. Ritter, if you could give us just maybe two or three favorite take-home points, and uh, we will then we'll let you get on with the rest of your day. <laughs> I'm sure this podcast has been the highlight of your day, but you know. <laughs> I'll do my best. I think not missing Achilles injuries is really important. I think, over, and I'm by no means an expert in this, but over the, the five or six that I've diagnosed Achilles ruptures, almost all of them have been seen by physicians before. So it's really important. Some people describe it as ankle pain, and that doesn't sound to us like an Achilles injury, but... So just have a low threshold for, for working that up. I would respect the ankle sprain. It's not just an ankle sprain. It can lead to prolonged disability. And I guess start using more of this. I used to like just my eyes would glaze over when mm -hmm. someone, I remember this little old lady once saying my feet hurt. And I was like, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> you know, so I would just like change the subject or talk about our blood pressure. And... <laughs> But, I mean, these, this is not rocket science, obviously. And the more you do, the more comfortable you feel and the more you'll take care of these patients. So, Yeah, I think that that has been our... We've done shoulder, elbow, knee, hip, uh, you know, now ankle, mm -hmm. and we have a hand. Yeah, we, we've, we felt the same thing, and that's why we, we're very right. fortunate to have your teaching today. And uh, thank you so much for being oh, on the show. Oh, my pleasure. We really appreciate you coming. It's a nice little morale lift for, for <laughs> us. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Despite Paul, uh, you know, <laughs> sure. it's, it's been great. And on that note, so but before we actually get to the outro, why don't we one more um, cheap heat and actually just a round of applause again for Dr. Ritter for spending her time with us. Thank you. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. I'm right in front of everyone. <laughs> it feels great. <laughs> Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge, and we want your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also email us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to Dr. Paul Williams for writing and producing this episode and to our whole team. Uh, the Curbsiders is produced and edited by the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. 
Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And Paul, with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>